Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Doctor podcast with me, your host, Dr. Andrew Threadgold. In this episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the comfort zone and why it's the most dangerous place to be, and also why the stool that I sit on that has three legs is better than the stool that many people sit on that only has one leg. And now we'll come back to this later on and explain exactly what I mean. I'd like to start by talking a little bit about why people struggle to get started in new ventures. We all know those people that would like to come up with an idea, such as the flugel binder at the end of a set of shoelaces and sit back on a beach in wherever, the Caribbean and count our money. But life just isn't like that. That That's not how life works. So you don't typically start on a new venture or an entrepreneurial bent just on a whim. There's usually a reason behind it. You don't wake up one morning and think, oh, do you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna go and start a used car business. It's just not how it works. There's usually some, some reason that you, you want to do it. And that reason is usually outside the comfort zone. Because lots of people, myself included, have a job and have an income and the income pays the bills and they go on holiday once a year and it's comfortable. And because it's comfortable, the the desire and the, the need to go and do something else isn't that present. You might have a whim, you might have a bad day, you might think, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go and have a go at something tomorrow. But there's not enough motivation there to to actually make anything successful. You might start a website, you might even go as far as getting some flyers made or go to a networking event. But unless you truly have a great desire to do it, you'll quickly go on your next holiday and go out for dinner with the wife and kids or whatever and you'll be back comfortable and when the first bad day comes you'll just sack it off and it won't be it won't be what you're after so on either side of the comfort zone I, I, I liken the comfort zone to, to a three-lane motorway and the comfort zone's the middle lane and then on one side of the comfort zone I, I always imagine the there is the financial necessity zone. That's easy for you to say. And um, in this financial necessity, it's people that may have more more month than money. They, they may not have enough money to pay the bills. They might end up getting deeply in debt. They might be sick of firefighting the bills when they come in. Um, they may just want a better standard of living and uh, and they can't afford to do that, and it's ground them down for many years. Um, in doctors, in particular, that tends not to be the case because we were educated professionals with with reasonable incomes. Um, but it still does happen. But that's that's the financial necessity side of the the comfort zone, and I'm sure we can all kind of empathise with that. Then on the other side of the comfort zone, on the the other lane of the motorway, I I liken that one to a a spiritual or a a mental necessity zone where someone's in a job where they might be bored or they might be overwhelmed with the workload or 
they may have ended up in a in a dead end job with no prospects and they just get sick of working for the man day after day after day um and it, it dampens the spirits and brings them down and they can't face going into work any any longer and they long for the day where they can actually work for themselves and that's kind of the other side of the comfort zone and it's in one of those sides of the motorway one of those two outer or inner lanes of the motorway where the necessity becomes so real and so tangible that someone takes the action required to actually do something. But you can't just dip into that zone and back out again because what you tend to find is that this starting a new venture, whatever it may be, whether it's a bricklaying company all the way up to a multi-million pound property business, this is a slog. It, there is nothing happens quickly. It's it's okay having the short term motivation, but but what happens on the days where things don't go to plan? What happens when it, you realise that actually you're not making any money yet? You put in all this time and effort, and you could be doing an extra day's work somewhere, and you might get you know a day's pay for it where you've spent three weeks on something and you've not earned a penny yet other than sunk your time into it, it quickly becomes demoralising. Which is why you, you're not just wandering into one of those lanes of necessity. You're actually over the, the lane and onto the rumble strip at the other side um, because it, it does need to truly be that significant to actually make a go of it. So how did mine come about then? Well... As you know, I'm a GP with uh, many years' experience. I've been in, in the NHS for about 20 years now. And I always, I come from a, a working class background. My mum was a seamstress. My me, me dad was a mechanic. Um, I had a, a f- I have a family, like my aunts and uncles had their own business. Um, and they always seemed to be the ones that were doing very well. Whereas I was always the one that was trying to come up with my younger, when I was a kid, trying to come up with new businesses to try and make my own money because I never got any from my parents. I always had a business washing cars or trying to flog football stickers or whatever. But I came from a a background of, of really nothing. And then I ended up going down to medical school in London at St. Bartholomew's and pretty much everybody around me at Bart's came from a private school background, Eton, Harrow, Uppingham, that kind of thing. And I remember going to the, the, those people's parents' houses for weekends um, and thinking, my God, you know, you know, I come from a council estate. What have I, you know, how does this, you know, how do you get this? What do you do? And I had always been thought, been taught, get a job, do well at school, go to university, get a good education, have a good income, and it will all come to you. Well, in actual fact, I mean, there's only so far you can get when you work for somebody else, whether it's working for the NHS as a salaried doctor or holding an NHS contract as a GP partner. There's only so far you can go. There's a ceiling on that income, and the taxman likes to bring that ceiling down quite, quite a way. So... I noticed that um, a lot of my money was going out 
not just to the taxman, which is fair enough, but also in pension contributions. And I was thinking, well, what's going on with this? First of all, as a junior doctor, I was paying whatever it was, 15% of my income to to the NHS pension. You'd go to these little junior doctor events where you'd have someone from one of the financial companies come out and they'll try and tell you that, you know, the, uh, for example, from the, they might come out from Wesleyan or somewhere like that and they might try and tell you that actually the NHS pension is the best pension you can get, defined benefits or whatever it might be. I can't remember. I'm not a, a big pension fan. So it never really took my my mind off it really I thought I just took it at first value I didn't know any better um, and none of this is financial advice this is just my take on on things so I carried on and then ended up being qualified as a GP and then became a GP partner and then I looked at the end of the when you get your accounts at the end of the year and you think plumbing neck look at you know there's so much it's like 30 odd percent of my my yearly income has gone on my pension and then the rest of it's going on tax and I'm actually you know whilst to a lot of people listening that aren't in medicine it might be a great salary but when you see so much of what you've earned disappearing you think a bit differently and then I started to question well this NHS pension business what's what's so good about it because as a partner, you pay not only your employees' contribution that everybody pays, but you're also your employer. So you pay your your employer's contribution. So effectively, as a partner in a practice, you pay two lots of contributions or double the contributions for the same benefit as everybody else. Well, immediately that means it's half as good as, as somebody that's not a partner. So that got me thinking to start with. And then I started thinking, well, there's got to be better ways of spending that that kind of that pension money than than putting it away to somewhere where I cannot access it. I've got 40 years of work left in me, or however long, 30 years of work left in me. I'll never be able to touch it for many years to come. And even when I do touch it, it might give me 40 grand a year or something. Well... Don't get me wrong, £40,000 a year is a lot of money to have as a pension. Certainly for the vast majority of people. I understand that. But I'm coming from a different place. I'm coming from a... a, This is a a philosophical discussion. So I thought, well, surely there's got to be better use of that. Because, you know, when you're putting... Getting up towards £40,000 per year into a pension, to end up with £40,000... If you take your pension at 68 or whatever, these are very round numbers, surely there's better ways of doing it. So that just stuck with me and I thought about, you know, how this could happen, what you could do. So looked into stockbroking, all sorts of bits and pieces and nothing ever, ever really stuck. And I kind of just carried along in in the comfort zone, enjoying my, my life with my wife and going on nice holidays. And then... Out of the blue one day, I um, I got a letter from the GMC saying that I was being investigated. And th- this is a very frightening thing for any any doctor. It's the one thing that we all dread. Um, and I didn't see it coming. And it, it was quite shocking, actually. 
And what, in a nutshell, to to um, to try and and simplify it, basically, what happened was I tried to do somebody a favour by doing a cremation form over the Christmas period when neither the part one or part two doctor could have been contacted and they asked me to do the part two. If you're not a medical person, basically there is a document that needs signing by three doctors to authorise the cremation. The part two, which is the one I was being asked to do, the the, the middle bit of the process, you have to corroborate the story with the doctor at the, the, the beginning um, to ensure they're not Harold Chipman. Um, and once you've done that, then it goes to the third doctor who looks at the whole page and says, yep, that's fine, this person can be cremated. And it's a very serious piece of legislation, and I, I don't take it, you know, lightly. However, when none of the people could be contacted and the funeral was the next day and I'm under pressure and busy, the funeral director said, will you have a look at this and will you do it because the family had passed themselves and it was somebody that had died in a care home, they were on the end of life pathway with terminal illness I says, and I tried to ring the part one and the part two doctor unsuccessfully. Um, whilst I was actually at the funeral home, I thought, right, it's straightforward. I'll do the paperwork and I will ring the uh, the doctors afterwards. Anyway, so this is exactly what happened. So then I, I rang the doctors um, later on. and One of them finally picked up and said, what have you done? Why have you been going doing part twos? You shouldn't be doing things like that. I was like, look. You know, you didn't, you weren't available, etc., etc. Anyway, they said, right, fine, we'll leave it at that. Cut a long story short, they didn't leave it at that, um, and then informed the GMC, and the GMC came and started investigating me, and it was eighteen months of abject misery. They went through every single cremation form that I'd ever done. They went through my records. They took statements from all my colleagues. Um, the Medical Defence Union were absolutely no use, really. In fact, they made matters worse because... Actually, now I'm going to... Looking back now, they actually did me a favour because they said, you do know, Dr Threadgold, that people get struck off for doing things like this. And me, me ass went. And I'll never forget that phone call. So I put the phone down at actually shaking, thinking... My God, I've got good income, I've got good bills to pay, I've got very expensive bills to pay, I've got a nice house, I've got nice things, I've got a standard of living. How would I ever earn what I'm earning now any other way? Because when you're at school, you get told, oh, doctors have transferable skills, you can jump into anything, go and work in the bank as a banker, go and work in the city as a stockbroker. Well, actually, when it comes down to it and boils down to it, you might be able to do that, but it takes you years. So what are you going to do? How are you going to flip-flop from one job to another in the face of potentially losing everything? And that was when the necessity truly began for me because I realised that I only had one stream of income. And the only, I mean, apart from the reputational thing about the GMC investigating you, 
which is never nice. And you think that your friends are looking at you thinking, oh, look, he's a dodgy doctor. Apart from that, the real main thing that you're worried about is not being able to pay your bills and your family, the safety and security of your family. So it very stressful. I mean, I lost, I must have lost two stone in weight over that time. It was truly, truly awful. And it's no wonder that lots of, lots of doctors actually end their lives when they're, when they're being investigated by the GMC, because it's absolutely frightening. But it, in the end, the GMC didn't really do anything. Nothing really happened. I carried on working. I got great support from my family. Um, and it, it all blew up into, into not a great deal. But it set the it set the necessity. I'd gone over that line. I'd hit the rumble strip and I was frantically searching for another way to be financially secure. And working, exchanging my time for money is not that way to, to fund your life or fund my life anyway. So then I hit upon property um, and I thought, you know, say for just for the sake of argument, say I put £30,000 a year into the pension and then and every time I do that, it adds up to £1,300 a year income if I take my pension at the age of 68. And say I'm 35, or however old I was. So I've got another 32 years of putting £30,000 a year into a pension. And I've, I can't access that money for at least 20 years of that. That just doesn't sound like good value to me. So then I thought, well, what about putting that £30,000 into a property as a deposit? What would happen then? Well, you'd get a house for, of a certain value, for sake of argument. You might get a house of 80 grand, something like that, maybe. Um, and you might get a rental income from pretty much day one. You might, that rental income might be 200, 300 quid after you've paid your mortgage. And you get that from the beginning. So that's, what, three grand a year profit, for sake of argument, after all bills and mortgage payments. And then on top of that, over the 20 or 30 years until you're 68, that house isn't going to still be worth 100 grand to, as it was when you bought it. In 30 years' time, it's going to be worth a lot more than that. It might be worth 200 grand. Even if it's only worth 150, it's still grown in value. And on top of that, you can get any of your money back out in a relatively short time. You, you know, it might take you six, 12 months to sell it, but it's still a lot shorter than waiting until you're 55 to be able to, to to get it. So that was that was the true kind of light bulb moment with me. And then I thought, right, well, I'm going to have to come out of the pension then. So as soon as you try it yourself, if you're a doctor, try telling people, actually, I'm going to come out of the pension scheme. And see, you know that look that you get if you stick a red-hot coal up a donkey's backside? That look on the donkey's face. Well, that's the same kind of look that people give you when you tell them you're coming out of the pension scheme. It's like, you what? What? It's like as if it goes against all thinking of most people. When, in actual fact, it was just it just seemed and felt like the right thing to do for me personally. 
So that was the, the that was how we got started. Um, but as I say, you need you really do need to have had a big fright, or you do need to to have some significant change in your in your circumstances or the threat of it, or you need to be absolutely at your wits' end with your position to to have enough desire to do something because motivation simply isn't enough motivation disappears very very quickly um there's many more bad days and hard days and difficult days and and days where you think what's the point nothing's working there's more of them than you could ever imagine in fact there's more of them than there isn't but i think someone defines success as constantly failing but never giving up and that's that's how it feels for most of the time and especially if you start off with buy to lets, you know, where your, your your monthly profit might only be two hundred and fifty pounds a month. Um but once you get a few of those and you suddenly your monthly profit's seven hundred and fifty pounds a month, well or so for ease of ease of uh, calculations it, it's you've got four. So say you've you've worked for a few years, you've got four buy to lets. Um you've acquired them however you acquire them, there's lots of strategies on that that I might Come, I might discuss uh, in later podcasts. But say you've got four, so suddenly you've gone from nothing, and you've now got a thousand pounds a month after-tax income. Well, that's that's a that's a good chunk of income. Say you're still working, so you're still in your comfort zone, paying your bills, but you can see that there's an end in sight. Well, all of a sudden that thousand pounds a month starts to build up, and at the end of the year you might have twelve grand that you're not far off a deposit for another one. So then it, things start to snowball and one uh, portfolio then starts to generate more money and the money it generates helps you put deposits down on the next one and then the monthly cash flow is even bigger. And it, and so it and so it goes on. But it takes an awful lot of time and effort to get to that point. And it's not get rich quick. Property will never be get rich quick. It's get rich very slowly, but people do manage to get very rich doing it. And with the the money that you get, it gives you more legs on your stool. So when I got investigated by the GMC, I had a stool with one leg on it. That one leg was my self-employed income from being a doctor. Whereas if you've got three legs on your stool, you're much more stable. So now... You know, you might have income from property. You might have income from different property strategies, such as holiday lets. So you might have a buy-to-let income stream. You might have service accommodation income stream. You might have a HMO income stream. You might have a planning gain income stream. You might have a deal sourcing business income stream. You might still be at work, so you've got your job income stream. So all of a sudden, you've got six legs on your stool. And it doesn't matter if one or two of them legs get sawn off because you've still got a good stool that you can sit on. And at the end of the day, if we haven't got a comfy ass and a comfy chair to sit on, what have we got? So there we go. So in a nutshell, we all know people, including ourselves, that we've got plans, we plan to do something. I've got friends that plan on doing things. They've been planning on doing things for years, and they're still planning on doing it. And they're not bad people. I love many of them to bits. They're good friends of mine. But they're firmly in the comfort zone. And 
it's outside the comfort zone where the true growth really happens. So thank you very much for listening. I've been overwhelmed by the response from the first podcast. I hope that this provides value to people. I'm taking all suggestions on board. Thank you very much for the kind comments. And there are lots of interviews and guest appearances coming up, but it might not be for another week or so because they all need editing and things like that. So please feel free to interact, engage, get in touch. Um, Please keep listening. And for now, I'll see you later, property people. Bye-bye.